Alright, so I'm very excited because we are starting a new sermon series today, Faith Misunderstood. And it went very well in the first service. So if it doesn't go well, it's your fault. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I'm very excited because faith, it's harmful to misunderstand God and faith. Not just for Christians, but for the whole society. Our country, America, is 80% professing Christian. So if faith is misunderstood, it can cause, it can have a lot of impact. Um, now Jesus, in his days, he too faced a whole country built on misguided faith. So he had to redefine and reclarify faith again and again, who God is. It was not easy. Because at the time, people of faith really believed God is all about his laws found in the Bible. It's all about who's in, who's out, who's sinning, who's not sinning, who is the elect, who is the chosen, who is not. All these categories that people were put under. There is a, a morning prayer that Jewish men, people of faith, prayed every morning that illustrates this mindset, what that kind of approach to God results in. Every morning, Jewish men prayed this prayer as a thanksgiving, as a blessing. They went, it went something like this. They, they went, God, thank you for not making me a slave. God, thank you for not making me a Gentile. God, thank you for not making me a woman. Can you believe that? Every morning, men of faith got up and prayed, God, thank you for not making me a woman. How, would you, how do you feel about that? Women in this room, what do you think that kind of thing would lead to? It's not good, don't you think? Misguided faith. Jesus had a, a tall task trying to set that straight. He tried to set the record straight that God is love. Above all, every law, every category has to look through the, uh, the lens of love. But, of course, he was rejected and killed. It's not the end of the story. We celebrate his resurrection every year. Last Sunday, we had Easter service. Wasn't that so great, Easter service? Very powerful. He is alive. He's making a difference in our lives today. That's the heart of faith. You know? That without the living God, faith can be misunderstood so badly. You know? That's the problem. This misguided faith keeps persisting, causes lots of harm. So I'm really excited for our new sermon series. It's going to be a 10-week series looking at various topics of how God has been misunderstood. I'm going to try to set the record straight. But for today, what I want to talk about, what I want to set straight, is God wants you to be you. God wants you to be you. This is not well understood. Because so many of us, especially in churches or faith, we feel like God wants us to be someone we are not. We need to be better or different or in some ways, which is irrational. God created you. God created all of us. It's irrational to think that God created us 
and wants us to be someone we are not. But that's what we end up thinking. We strive to become someone we are not, rather than finding our true self as God intended us to be. Now, it's not easy to find our true self. This is one of life's hardest tasks, to find your true self. But we can't give up on that. We have to find our true self because without being in touch with who you truly are, you will never have lasting happiness. So if you give up on finding your true self, you give up on happiness. So this you have to do. So today I want to talk about two obstacles to finding and embracing your true self. Two misguided ethics. Two major life philosophies, two misunderstandings of faith and God and life that get in the way of finding your true self. It's shaping practically everyone's life today. The first misguided approach, I would call it the ethics of the Bible without God. The ethics of the Bible without God. This is an approach that kind of takes the Bible without taking into account that God is really alive. It's as if God gave these laws and then he disappeared. And faith is all about us measuring up to what God has said. And that can lead to a lot of bad things. Now, don't get me wrong. Trying to measure, measure up to Bible standards is a good thing. If the motivation is right. If... You're trying to follow the Bible because it's life-giving. For example, if, if your life is chaotic, if you're struggling with addictions, if your tendencies hurt people, and you realize, you know, I got to straighten out or life is just spinning out of hand. And so you want to you know, live up to these standards. That's a good thing. It will give you life. But if we take Bible standards and categories and start to define ourselves and people around us with it, like, God, thank you for not making me a woman. (laughs) If we start doing stuff like that, if we start to draw our self-worth from what we do for God or to be a good person or to meet the Bible's demands, and we think this is what makes us a good person, that's not faith. That's not Christianity. This is Christian faith 101, folks, right? Our worth, our value, that defines who we are, comes from Jesus and what he has done on the cross. Amen? Amen? It does not come from what we do or do not do. Yes? That's Christian faith. It doesn't work if you try to draw your self-worth from this. It can never work because nobody can ever really measure up to God's standards. It only leads to disconnection. More than that, it leads to craziness. If you're constantly under pressure to meet up to these standards, you will never find yourself. And you will also be under these crazy pretzel situations that will drive you crazy. For example, just... A couple centuries ago, this is a real historical example of what people were facing. Slaves were told, slaves, you must obey your masters. Never rebel. 
Accept this as your fate. You are slaves forever because Bible says. Bible does say slaves must obey their masters. So you accept this or you are damned for going against God's will. What a crazy choice people were put under, right? Accept slavery or be damned. That's cruel. Don't you agree? This is horrible. This kind of choice. Or women. You can't lead. You can't speak at church. You are inferior to men. Accept this. Or get cut off from church. Crazy choice. Or LGBTQ community today. You know, are they to live under condemnation and damnation forever for who they are and how they were born, how God created them? These are just horrible choices. Women must submit to their husbands. God, thank you for not making me a woman. I I mean, this this kind of mentality, because the Bible says. There's this common misunderstanding That the Bible and God are the same thing. That God just put these laws in the Bible and He disappeared. And so we must follow this. It applies for all time, across all cultures. This mindset and this approach to faith was plainly and flatly rejected by Jesus Himself. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, He says, There are laws of God in the Bible that are against God's will. He only gave those laws because of the time at the time, that context of the people at the time, they needed it, but it is not to be applied across time. We're going to get into that more in a few weeks. What a shocking statement, right? He makes it very clear that Bible and God are not the same thing. God uses the Bible for people at the time, as we are. He's dealing with us as we are in our culture. So he has to talk to us as we think. But it is not to be applied across all time. Slavery should not exist for all time. Can we agree on this? Amen. Amen. Just because Bible says slaves must obey their master does not mean slavery should exist for all time. It is not to be applied. It is not God's will. It needs to go through the lens of love. What is loving? Are we agreed? Good. So, Bible cannot take the place of the living God. And we cannot find our true self organizing our lives around the ethics of the Bible without the living God. On the other hand, there's another misguided approach. I would call it ethics of love without God. Ethics of love without God. This is, this is the choice of people who's just had it up to here with the craziness of the rigid Bible culture. Just can't take it anymore. The many Americans today, you know, we, we, this, is a, this, has, this country has Christian roots. So basically, you know, everyone you know, has that mindset, Christian culture. But then, but then this craziness of the Bible without God drives people crazy. And then they, 
And, and, and many of us choose to just chuck the whole thing. You know, if the Bible teaches these things, that women must submit to the, the man or things like that, people just start to get fed up with this and they chuck it. And, and so now, people try to organize their lives. Many people try to organize their lives or find their true self without God, without anything higher. So you just follow your own inner light. You, you follow you know, who, you know, whatever is coming from you. There's nothing higher. And I try that myself. And my experience with that is that I felt lost. It's really hard <laughs> to try to define and find yourself without anything other than just my own inner light. I'm just trying to define myself by myself, using only myself. And it's, it's, like, it's like trying to push off of something without anything to push off of. It's how do I define myself with just myself? I felt completely lost and depressed and just joyless. It was horrible to be in that space. It was only when I started to have real powerful spiritual experiences of the living God that I began to have much more fulfilling life. But then these misunderstandings just kept getting in the way of faith. And Jesus, Jesus faced the same dynamic. So he, he tried to de- redefine and, and, and open up a, a third way, another way than these two things we talked about. There's a very powerful teaching In Matthew 5. That comes from a very powerful, well-known, famous sermon he gave called Sermon on the Mount. Shall we take a look? It just speaks to this issue very powerfully. Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets, it's the Bible. That's what they called the Bible at the time. The law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the laws of God found in the Bible, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law, the laws of God, until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Now, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, but anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means you fool, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool repetitious, but you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. But he wants to make this very clear, I think. So Jesus begins this passage with what sounds very strict and harsh, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like something that a very conservative Bible Christian would say? In fact, this is the top favorite passage of the conservative Bible Christians. I am taking that passage today. Setting myself the toughest task. This is the toughest, top favorite passage of conservative Bible Christians. 
And he says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. Laws of God found in the Bible. Therefore, anyone who sets aside any of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he is prohibiting any dilution, any warping, any kind of compromise, right? He is saying you cannot lessen or compromise the laws of God in any way. They cannot be waved away. Don't you dare bring it down in any way to fit your needs to compromise with the world. Doesn't it sound like that, right? That's what he's saying, it seems. Sounds very conservative. And it's easy to look at this this teaching as the command to live by the Bible and live up to God's standard. But the Bible is a very deep thing. There are layers and layers. You look deeper and deeper and deeper meanings emerge. See? He then goes on to start to say things that become a little bit uncomfortable. He says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are these Pharisees and teachers of the law? I will tell you, they were like Olympic athletes when it comes to trying to live up to God's laws found in the Bible. Okay? Historically speaking, there is no group that can measure up to just how much effort they put into. They were completely obsessed We're living up to the least stroke of the laws of God found in the Bible. So much so that they they just were so careful about how they wash their hands. They you can't push buttons on elevators on you know Sabbath. I mean it was just crazy how much effort they put into. So to beat them at that game is going to be pretty much impossible. I would bet that none of us sitting here can come close, not even one-tenth close to what they did to live up to Bible's commands in the Bible. It's just unbelievable how much effort they put into to understand and follow the Bible. So if Jesus is saying, unless you surpass them, you won't be saved, who can be saved then if you take it in those terms? So it starts to get uncomfortable. And then he begins to redefine faith. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Makes sense. Don't kill, don't murder. This is the old covenant, Ten Commandments. Don't murder, or you will be liable to go to hell. God will judge you. Judgment day, last judgment. God will judge you. Don't murder. We can accept that, yeah? So far, so good. Murder's not so good, right? I think so. But then here, he turns it around completely. Here is the shocking twist. He says, but I tell you, he redefines. I tell you, you have heard. This is the face that you have. But I tell you, he redefines. He says, Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you fool, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus makes equivalent murder and getting angry. 
Yes? Murder and you are subject to judgment and fires of hell. Get angry, you are subject to judgment and fires of hell. He makes it equivalent. Correct? Okay, so then, how many of us have never gotten angry? Ever? In your life? There was one person who raised her hand in first service. Anyone? Anyone there? Never gotten angry, not even when you were two. You know? Anyone? No one? You've all gotten angry? Can anyone honestly say, I've never gotten angry? I've never thought, you fool. In New York? Have you seen these tourists? Fools that they are. Right? I mean, these tourists, they come and they don't know you're not supposed to stop. You can't just, you're walking, you can't stop to take pictures. You're not supposed to do that. You will cause accidents. You know, it's like stopping in the highway in New York. Can't do that. Right? Have you, have you, have you seen the pe- things people do in subways? It's crazy fools, right? Come on, fess up. Have you ever thought, it's fools, crazy. What are you doing, right? So we all do that. You might probably do that this week, in fact. Okay, then. How many of you plan on murdering someone this week? (laughs) You know, I I understand if you can't be honest. It's not something you want to, like, raise your hand on. I plan on murdering. I'm a murderer. You probably can't be honest. But seriously, I I, I trust nobody here. I, I trust nobody is a murderer. Can I assume that? There was some skepticism in the first service (laughs) about that. But I think it's pretty safe to assume that nobody has a murdering habit around here. So, what is Jesus doing? Making equivalent murder and getting angry. How are we to take this? Well, most of us take it this way. Well... I mean, it's kind of harsh teaching, but uh, let's take it down a few notches, okay? Right? I mean, maybe Jesus, you know, he was like maybe overexcited that day, maybe a little bit, you know? I mean, he was like overzealous. Maybe he ate something bad. Uh, You know, he was having a stomach problem, so he just kind of like, and it came out a little stronger than he meant to maybe. Let's take it down and let's, let's look at the heart of the teaching, you know? I mean, it's saying angry, anger. That's not so good, right? We can agree with that. Let's just, I mean, we're Christians. Let's not just get angry too often or too quickly. We shouldn't get angry every day, right? That's not so good. So let's just try not to get angry too much. I think that's what most of us do, right? But remember how Jesus started this teaching. He specifically, explicitly, repeatedly closes down that path. Remember? He said, not the least of a stroke of a pen. Don't you dare bring it down a few notches. Don't you dare water it down. Don't you dare dilute it in 
any way. He prohibits that completely. He did that for this reason. To make this point. To close down that path. I mean, how many of us are comfortable saying, you know, let's just not murder too often. Or too quickly. I mean, only when it's justified. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I only murder when it's justified. Good question. Right? I mean, that, he is making that point to say, don't get angry too often. It's exactly the same thing. You cannot do it. So now, Jesus is teaching and how he studied this passage that sounds like a conservative Bible thing. Now it hits us with incredible force. Now it makes sense what he's doing. We're prohibited to go this way. It's all binding. No dilution permitted. But it's impossible to live up to, isn't it? Not murdering, we can do. We can live up to that. So we take that part. But not getting angry, we cannot do that. So we water it down and we somehow make it work for us We take what we can do. We kind of wave away what we cannot do. We warp it. We dance around it. We are all guilty of it. Conservatives, liberals, it doesn't matter. Everyone does it. There's no other way to take this. Everyone does it. There's a point to this. Jesus is making a point here. Faith... Is not about measuring up to God's standards. Jesus taught that again and again through various, various stories. Prodigal son, many stories. No one can do it. Not only is it impossible, it reduces God to being practically dead. You know, this... idea that, God's gonna, that God gave us all these laws and He's only going to reappear on the judgment day to, to see how we did. In between, He's practically dead and it's all about what we can or cannot do. It's all about our efforts to live up to God, to measure up. And, and we have to if we think this way or we'll be damned. And, and so we dance, we warp, And the people who were the best at this were the Pharisees. They were so good at dancing and warping and interpreting so that they did all this stuff to fit God's laws to what they can do. And what that did was warp them. They killed God when God came to them in person. It warps you if you go this way. Faith needs to go beyond what we can do and cannot do. Faith is about what God does, not what we do. What brings glory to God is what God does for us. It's His grace, His love, and as we experience the living God, it changes us from inside out, and all these good fruits flow out from within. And that's how we can find our true self. I want to introduce Elmi to you. 
she has an incredible story about some of these dilemmas, misguided faith, how it affected her, and how the living God came to her and just changed her life. It's a powerful story. Would you please welcome Elmi? Hello. So, uh, yes, my name is Elmi, and uh, I come from this industrial city, and I was born in Soviet Union, and it became independent Ukraine later. And uh, religion wasn't exactly something people did back then, but slowly as people turned back to their roots and their culture, it became more... um, at least acceptable. So my mom, when I was about 11 or 12, she decided I should at least have an option to become a Christian if I wanted to. So she bought me a kid's Bible edition and um, she gave it to me and she said, figure it out. Um, (laughs) It had pictures. What can possibly go wrong? Anyway. (laughs) So as I read, uh, I kind of approached it with an open heart because I didn't have any preconceived knowledge of what Christianity was. So I felt like God became my friend pretty early on. But then as I started talking to other Christians and uh, I read farther on, it seemed like the God that I got to know through prayer and then the God that they knew and my Bible was talking about it was were like two different people. <laughs> like Orthodox Christian religion was all about locking me in my place as a woman and making sure I stay there. Um, it was about living your life to prove good enough to be in heaven later. But then the only way to be good enough seemed to live your life as a poor person in suffering because all of the pleasures or, you know, all of the desires or wealth came from the devil. <laughs> so it was a very depressing outlook at life. So finally, when I was about 15... I rebelled against God. I remember I knelt on my bed and I was praying. And I said, God, I want to be happy in this life. I want to make choices. I want to choose to do good because I wanted to, not because I feared punishment. I want to keep my strong voice as a woman, the person who I was, And if he didn't want to accept me the way I was, then probably it wasn't for me to be a Christian. And I kind of blurted that out, and then I stood there silent. And for what seemed like a very long time, there was no answer. And I got really scared. I was like, okay, now I really messed up. And, (laughs) like, God will just prepare, like, God was preparing to strike me dead just there and then. And, um... I was kind of really scared. (laughs) But then I felt this stream of energy or light or something just kind of hit me in the chest. And I fell backwards. It was, like, really strong. And it was very positive. It was this energy of, like, I felt like God accepted me in that moment. I felt that everything that I wanted, he approved of. And everything that I felt, felt like I was. He loved and accepted, like, every part of me. So since that day, like, I felt like I knew the truth that I couldn't unknow. So I decided that I believe in God, but not in religions. And I never wanted to join an organized religious institution ever in my life, except for trying to share this with my 
some occasional friends who would listen. Otherwise, it was a pretty lonely existence. <laughs> and it worked until it didn't. <laughs> so like 14 years later, I found myself in New York and like nothing was going my way. And like, I kind of felt like I lost it and I didn't know what I believed in anymore and I had nothing to hold on to. And I allowed my friend to take me to church. <laughs> First, it was trained to Grace in Brooklyn, and two months later, I met Steve, who brought me to the river. And then I was still really skeptical. But then somehow I sensed that the God who was my friend in my childhood was known here. It just seemed like this church existed in sync with New York City in the 21st century. There was no denial of reality, modern science, or common sense, no hypocrisy. The pastors explained the Bible passages that were confusing to me when I was a child from a new perspective of Jesus' love and grace. And the words felt relevant to me now. At the river, I found a community of grounded, sincere, intelligent, like-minded, but yet so different people who seemed to know my loving God personally. The existence of this church is like a true miracle in my life. Like finally, after all these years, I didn't have to choose between being false and being alone. I just feel like I belong here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Elmi. Isn't that such a powerful story? It's uh, wonderful, the, the living God. And, and don't you feel good? Uh, uh, for making this church I mean this is your work so kudos to you like she thinks you're all intelligent grounded (laughs) spiritually powerful people yeah good for you you know I'm so glad Almi had this profound experience of God and then found this church so we can all do this together isn't that so great and I am so mad that she had to face this crazy situation in the first place. That in these churches in, in Ukraine, in Orthodox churches, that, that it's all about like women, you know, do your place, locking you in into this inferior place. You got to submit to your husband. You can't speak at church. This, this crazy choice that she was faced with be, between being false, you know, like unknowing what she already knew, of this loving God she was experiencing, or being alone. Because, you know, if she were to be true to her and her knowledge of God, then she couldn't go to these churches who were, like, doing this to her. What a, what a crazy choice. Isn't that awful? And I'm so mad because it's not just Ukraine. It, 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 maybe it's a little more blatant. But in America, too, there was this big opinion piece this, just this past week. In New York Times, titled, Is Your Pastor Sexist? And it was about how so many churches in America, even even the largest churches in in New York, most respected churches, they don't let women lead. Because the Bible says, women cannot lead a church. What does that do? What is the message that sends? What is the mindset that breathes? Women cannot lead a church. What about at work? What about at home? What about in government? Would you be comfortable saying women cannot lead in government, work, or home? Anybody? 
But in church, women cannot lead. Why is that? Is that because church is a spiritual place? And these other places are not? Government or home doesn't have a spiritual component? Isn't it all spiritual? Isn't church the the place? I mean, this is just crazy to say women are not as good as men. That is just so misguided. That is not true. God made both men and women in His image. God is both male and female. Women are not inferior to men. Amen? You're all equal. Women are just as good as men. You can lead anywhere. Amen? Be freed. Be lifted up. Don't be under this crazy stuff. Because, yes, the Bible says these things. The Bible also says slaves should obey their masters. Are we going to go with that? Anybody comfortable going with that? We need a bigger understanding of what the Bible is saying. We need a living God and love to interpret and apply these things. God lifts you up, women. You are created beautifully in the image of God. God wants you to be you. God does not want you to be men. Okay? Not any better, trust me. We tend to be emotionally more retarded. Okay? So, you know... You probably should lead, actually, in spiritual matters. God wants you to be you. That's what Elmi experienced. This real spiritual experience to living God. That, that serves as a foundation, as a platform to start to find your true self. That's, that's what you need, and we are here to do it together, guided by the Bible, as Jesus teaches these powerful teachings, telling us, Way to go. It's not about those things. It's about experiencing God who is love. And it will lead to freedom. It will lead to finding yourself. It will lead to life in all its fullness. It will lead to joy. It's a beautiful thing to do together. That's why I love this church. We're meant to do this together. You're not supposed to be alone. Nor false. Neither approach is satisfactory. Ethics of the Bible without God, it becomes judgmental hypocritical, unsatisfactory. Ethics of love without God, it becomes arbitrary, empty, unsatisfactory. We don't have to choose one or the other. Here is faith that will give you life. This is the good news of Jesus and the cross. God wants you to be you. I'm so excited for our 10-week series. We're going to look at various things like church, sin, Bible, all these things with the living God helping us to understand these things. It's going to help you. It's going to set you free. It's going to change how you think about God and life. It's going to be very powerful. So please come to church. Next 10 weeks, weather is going to be nice. <laughs> and you're going to want to just go away. But there's going to be some powerful things happening here, okay? It can really help you for the rest of your life. So come to church, all right? Let me pray for us. God, thank you. That you want us to be us. You created us. You affirm our true selves that's within us. Set us free from all these misguided misunderstandings of faith and God. And all these teachings help us to understand the 
grace of God, the love of God, the message of the cross, who Jesus really is. And we shall have life and all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.